Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And I'm John Harmon. In this podcast, we teach accessible and responsible Bible and Christian theology. We began a new series two episodes ago, and in the first of that series, we looked at the first portion of Isaiah chapter 40. This is the chapter that begins with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It goes on and talks about a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. We went through how that particular proclamation in Isaiah is a proclamation to Israel, that God is coming to rescue his people from exile. But then in the last episode, we looked at how that text was appropriated by the gospel writers, how they looked back to Isaiah and saw in Isaiah a direct reference to John the Baptist, who in each of the gospels is used to introduce Jesus. And in particular, we looked at Matthew and Matthew's account of how that was used. In this episode, we turn to the nativity story in Luke 2, 1 through 20. This is about as traditional a Christmas Eve text as you can find, isn't it, Ron? <laughs> yes, it is. This is it. But this is a passage that's good for any time of year. In fact, we should engage the story of Jesus' birth at other times, too, because we'll probably see and learn some things differently when we're not neck deep and trying to navigate and, and sometimes just survive the holiday season. <laughs> but back on topic, in this story, the proclamation of God's future coming and the call to prepare for his arrival are now in the background as heaven itself declares the fulfillment of God's promise in Bethlehem, that proclamation that God has come. So with the coming of Jesus the Messiah, God was bringing all of those promises of comfort, strength, absolute forgiveness, and ongoing steadfast covenant love to ultimate fulfillment. The traditional story of Jesus' birth that everyone hears comes out of the second chapter of Luke, but that means there is another chapter there. There is Luke chapter 1 that sets up a context for even the birth narrative that we get in chapter 2 of Luke. That first chapter of Luke begins with an account of Zachariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist. It builds on that story, but then turns to a story of Mary receiving a message. She is visiting by an angel of God, Gabriel, who tells her that she's going to have a son who will be the king of Israel forever. And Mary's response is a song that we often call the Magnificat. It goes after the first word of her song in Latin. The song begins with the words, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is Mary responding to the news that she's received. And the song that she sings is very clearly styled after a song that was sung by Moses and Miriam when the people of Israel escaped from Egypt. So we have this magnificent song that Mary sings in response to the news that she has received. Up to this point, this is the way Luke is building the story. Right. And after Luke sets this Jewish context for us, then he backs up into a broader perspective and very carefully sets the birth of Jesus in the context of world history. He opens with the much broader historical and political setting of the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus in the first century. Then he turns again to narrow the focus onto the tiny Judean village of Bethlehem. 
And all of this is happening during the time of Herod the Great, Herod the infamous character from, <laughs> from the biblical story and from the history of this time. Herod was the one whom Caesar had appointed as the local ruler of the Jewish population. This is all part of the Roman Empire, but Caesar had appointed Herod to rule this particular part of the empire more locally. And Herod's rule included the regions of Judea and Galilee, among a few others. Now, Right next to the little town of Bethlehem stood a fortress, a palace that Herod himself had built as one of his maybe escape hatches uh, should things go badly for him. Uh, He was always paranoid about people turning on him and treachery and where he might be able to hole up and fight from or escape to. Every villain needs a lair, huh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. This was one of Herod's villainous lairs. Okay. It was called Herodium, not surprisingly, named for Herod himself. (laughs) It was actually built into a mountain. Okay. The ruins of it looked like a volcanic cone, and down inside of it was a luxurious palace, but it was also built as a fortress to be very defensible. A combination of power and luxury, very much a symbol of earthly rule, in sharp contrast to the humble beginnings of the King of Kings, who was born right next door in Bethlehem. If you want to see a picture of Herodium or or the ruins of this fortress palace that Herod had built, uh, you can find a picture of it in our ebook. I encourage you to, to head over there and check that out. Caesar Augustus had called for the citizens of all the provinces in Rome to go and register themselves for the purpose of assessing taxes. This was about money for the Roman Empire. And that's what brought Joseph back to his ancestral hometown of Bethlehem, where the Messiah King was to be born. And we already know that the Messiah is to come from Bethlehem because we read about that in Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament. We already know about that. The way that Luke opens this story, we can see that even on the larger world stage of the Roman Empire, God is preparing a way for the arrival of the one who would deliver his people. John, it occurs to me, Luke's the one who gives us the book of Acts. And when Acts opens up, Luke sets out what's going to happen. The disciples are told that they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then out to the ends of the earth. So you move from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. It almost sounds here as though Luke has set it up that we started in the broad context of the empire and we're being asked to focus on Bethlehem and the things are going to happen there. We're going to watch these events as they come out. We're going to get the ax and then it's going to burst back out again. Yes, I can see that Luke kind of narrows us in and then Luke then takes us back out into the world as this savior who is for the world, not only is born, but then grows up and suffers, dies, rises again, and then sends the gospel into the world. The text we're talking about in Luke chapter 2 is no doubt one that you have heard many times. It begins with these verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. 
Luke opens the story by setting it in the context of the imperial machinations of Rome. So this is certainly the greatest empire in this portion of the world at that time. And Luke accomplishes a couple of things when he does this. First, he makes it clear that the empire of Rome served the kingdom of God. Rome was simply an instrument of God's plan in this case, and that shouldn't surprise us too much. We're later going to go on, and as I alluded to earlier, Luke gives us the book of Acts as well, and there we see Paul using his Roman citizenship when it's appropriate for the furtherance of the gospel. So Rome simply serves furthering what needs to be accomplished in Jesus Christ here. The second thing that Luke accomplishes, though, is he's setting up a contrast. On the one hand, we have the grandiose Roman Empire. On the other hand, we have the context where the events that Luke is about to describe happen. With that introduction, Luke goes on to give some more specifics about the setting as he continues in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Something we want to understand here is where the relationship between Mary and Joseph stood at this point, because Luke tells us they were pledged to be married. Ron, I think even as some translations actually render this, they were engaged to be married. We want to be a little bit careful because engagements didn't work quite the same way as they do today. That word triggers some things today that uh, wouldn't have been the case back then because when people were pledged to be married, they were actually in a legal union. Okay, There was a contract. If they wanted to get out of that, they had to formally divorce. They had to go through a a legal divorce process. But when they became pledged to be married, they would uh, enact this engagement and sign a contract to that effect. But then she would return to her family, he would return to his, and this engagement or pledge period would last about a year. Then the man would spend that year preparing a house, getting ready to be married and to have his wife and family with him. And then he would return to her home and retrieve her, basically, (laughs) and bring her to his when they would actually be married and begin living together and begin their family. So this is a much higher level of formality than what we're implying when we talk about engagement these days. Absolutely. This was serious stuff. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. And of course, she's expecting, uh, as we know from the story, and so she comes with him. Right. Might not have ordinarily expected Mary to make this trip. Right. But she did because she was so close to giving birth. The reason they go, as we mentioned, was in order to register. They were taking a census for the purpose of assessing taxes in the region. A lot of people believe that Joseph was also registering for possible military service, but want to be clear that Jews did not serve in the Roman army. So this had nothing to do with military service or Joseph signing up to join the military or to be potentially drafted like selective service might work today. And when Luke mentions Bethlehem, the reader is probably going to understand that Bethlehem is a nowhere. It's a backwater wide spot in the road, just a very, very small village. Okay. That is to set this backdrop that the local setting for Jesus' birth was as low as it gets. The world beyond Bethlehem and beyond this humble couple that has traveled from Nazareth, was not going to take much notice of the arrival of David's successor. Well, it's at this point that we get to the actual birth. This is verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. 
she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So notice first off that Jesus is the firstborn. So this comes with all the rights of a royal firstborn to claim a throne. The eldest son had rights and responsibilities to care for the family and a greater share of the resources to carry out that role. A lot gets made of the location here. John and I have actually had a lot of fun talking about this, probably only the level of excitement that academics could have from this. <laughs> but we so often hear this translated that there was no room for them in the inn. I believe that was the King James Version rendering of it. We're definitely not talking about a hotel here. There was simply no place for them to stay. There were no quarters for them. As I've heard you describe it, John, the area around Bethlehem has a number of caves. It was common practice for them to house the animals in those caves. So it makes sense then when we see that the traditional location for Jesus' birth is off in a cave where the manger might have been that the the animals were kept and it was simply a convenient place for them to stay. Then Luke comes to the big announcement of Jesus' birth. He starts this way in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's some announcement. That's that's a pretty significant announcement right there. (laughs) Notice that it's a heavenly messenger that brings this. Let's do talk about angels for just a second. This is a fun road to go down. The Greek here is angelos which is exactly where we get our English word angel. We are deriving that directly from Greek. It's worth noting that in Greek, it simply means messenger. It doesn't necessarily have to be a messenger from God. And it's impossible for us to hear this Christmas story without seeing beautiful figures with wings on them, put in the sky because that's the image that's been presented to us. That's not necessarily implied at all by the language that we see here. It's simply a messenger from God. In fact, we're not told what those messengers look like. Our way of depicting angels is something that was traditionally built over hundreds or thousands of years there. So we've come to have a very specific picture in our minds. It's worth observing. This was simply a messenger from God who's then joined by a chorus that gives this majestic announcement. Right, and the announcement comes to these shepherds who are out in the pastures of Bethlehem. And I want to point out, just regarding the location, uh, Bethlehem and the pasture lands around Bethlehem are the closest pasture lands to Jerusalem. Uh, The distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem is very short, and the best and nearest pasture land is the area of Bethlehem. So it is very possible that these shepherds are tending the temple sheep or tending sheep that will ultimately be sent to the temple for sacrifice in Jerusalem. 
John, I'm embarrassed to say that it wasn't until you and I talked about this that it actually settled into me. We have Jesus born in a manger among the animals that are going to the temple to be sacrificed. That's profoundly significant given the entire story of what happens in the gospel here. Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, born here among the sheep, being tended specifically for that purpose. Yes, we really don't want to miss the significance of that connection. That's a really important one. And with the shepherds themselves, because they are potentially watching the temple sheep, they're probably good Jews. Okay. They're likely shepherds who had to be vetted by the temple, had to be approved by the temple to do this job. And that kind of brings up another common misperception uh, about the shepherds. A lot of times we hear the shepherds of this story characterized as sketchy, kind of uh, disenfranchised figures who are living at the margins, perhaps at the lower end of society, marginalized by society. But that's really probably not the case. These are probably the owners of the sheep, the family owners of the herd, who are actually attending the sheep at the time of this announcement, because this announcement comes at nighttime. Right. Yeah, it might be easy to think if we don't know anything about this period of history or this setting, it might be very easy to think, oh, well, the night shift, that would be the hired hands. Uh, right. That would be the extra help. That would be the people who work the third shift might be lower on the totem pole. Actually, it's probably the reverse. The nighttime was the most dangerous time. Uh, okay. The nighttime was the time when the threats were the greatest. And remember, these people didn't have a bunch of cash in a bank. All of their wealth was tied up in their flocks, their herds, or if they were farmers, in their crops. Uh, So you would fully expect a member of the family to be overseeing the sheep on the night shift because that was the time when something was most likely to go wrong. And in fact, Jesus himself talks about this, doesn't he, in John 10, when he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. In verse 12 of John 10, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. There are certain times when you used a hired hand and certain times when you didn't, and probably the times when the risks were the greatest were the time when you would actually see the owner of the sheep tending to them. So these shepherds weren't the downtrodden, passing through marginalized members of society. These shepherds were just ordinary people. They weren't wealthy, they weren't among the wealthy elite, but they weren't destitute either. There's really no evidence within several centuries, actually, on either side of the first century that gives us any indication that shepherds were really any different in terms of the the social strata than farmers were. You tended sheep, you worked the land, all of these vocations were just about the same. And really, there's nothing to be taken away from these shepherds just because they were shepherds. They do get told not to be afraid, even if it is the best and most interested in the flock they're guarding them. When you have a messenger from God show up, fear is a natural reaction. We see this over and over throughout scripture that when someone's confronted with this sort of situation, the message starts with don't be afraid. But it is worth thinking for a moment about those times when God shows up. For instance, I'm thinking here of Isaiah being confronted with his vision and being told, don't be afraid. Or Ezekiel, these shepherds are now in that specific situation. This is that kind 
of an encounter and the shepherds are told, don't be afraid. Now, we're also told that this is good news for all the people, pantitolau in Greek. And in this case, it literally means it's for everyone. So it's not just for the ruling elite. It's not just for the destitute. It's for the ordinary people going about their ordinary work like the shepherds in the field. So this announcement is made to the shepherds, but what is the message? What is the good news that they bring? Well, it's a birth in town. In the context of Isaiah 40, we know that this one who has been born is not merely a human king through whom God would work. God had come in person to deliver people, but it was a lowly birth. It was a birth that was consistent with the arrival of one who came not to be served, but to serve, as the Gospels tell us. And after the announcement of this birth in town, the angels join together to express heaven's joy in song. They sing for joy because the result of God's work in the world would be peace for all of those among whom that work had been let loose by God's grace. Once this announcement has been delivered by the heavenly messenger, by the angel, and celebrated by the chorus that joins that messenger, Luke concludes the story this way. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who is lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Notice that as Luke concludes this section, there's three different responses to what has happened. The shepherds, first of all, believed. They acted on faith. They believed and became witnesses by sharing what they had seen and heard. Let's go into town. Let's go see what God has told us about. So their response was to believe God and to go and check it out and to proclaim what they had seen and heard. The second response is the people who hear the shepherd's story. They are amazed, which is not necessarily to be equated with belief. They're amazed, they're astonished at what they've heard. And that's the way it often works. When we hear news of God's powerful and faithful action in the world, oftentimes it meets with the wonder of our minds before it actually touches our hearts such that we respond in faith. And I think that's something that's going on here with the people. It's different from the shepherds. But finally, we get to Mary. The shepherds' testimony, as they told the story of what had happened out in the fields to Mary, that testimony clearly did not bounce off of her as just something merely curious. Oh, isn't that odd? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that strange? Her heart was open. Luke is very careful to tell us. So we get the different responses from the shepherds to the people to Mary. And then finally, Luke ends with the shepherds. The shepherds make the only fitting reply to the angel's heavenly praise, and that is to return glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the reply of praise to what heaven itself has just declared to them and which has just been verified and shown to be true. Let's take a step back at this point. Luke tells this story to emphasize that the message is for everyone. 
And this really should hardly surprise us. As I alluded to earlier, Luke is also the one who gives us the book of Acts. And that's the story of this message about what God accomplishes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the story of that message working its way ultimately out to the whole world. So from the words good news for all the people to the delivery of this message to normal people like the shepherds going about their normal business in the field, the message is for everyone. John and I are both familiar with interpretations of the story that suggest the message is to the most destitute. Readings like that portray Joseph and Mary and the shepherds as outcasts of society. The message was to the outcasts, they argue, and implicitly not really for everyone else. As we already indicated, this reading is not historically accurate. Joseph and Mary and the shepherds represent everyday individuals, humble, but everyday individuals going about their regular business. And Luke is striving to say that the message is for everyone. So that reading that emphasizes destitution is ultimately divisive. It sets people against each other based on their station in life and encourages you to take sides. Nothing could be further from Luke's message. The message was for everyone, regardless of station of life. What will ultimately distinguish individuals is how they respond to the message. Again, regardless of station in life. It is possible to be so destitute you think God does not care and you miss the message of God's work in the world. It's possible to be so tied up in the cares of everyday life and making ends meet that you miss the message of God's work in the world. It's possible to be so well off that you think you have it all under control and you miss the message of God's work in the world. The point is the message. God is here. God is at work. This matters to everyone, including you. How will you respond? Something else that we might take away from this whole discussion is the simple fact that this is not just a story with a moral. It's anchored in a historical event. The shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Does it register with you that something has happened? A new reality is present here and now because God acted. But God didn't just act on the fly as if to say, well, nothing else has worked, so let's go to plan B. God has acted carefully and intentionally, fully in accord with what he had promised centuries before. God didn't need a plan B. Instead, God always makes a way for plan A, which is grace. That grace is relationship with the Creator, given not on the basis of our performance or our achievement, but squarely on the basis of grace rooted in God's love for humankind, whom God simply refuses to give up on, even though God has abundant cause to give up on humankind. Grace is and always has been God's plan A. Jesus was God's plan all along, the result of God's promise going all the way back to Abraham. What we read here in Luke 2 is the continuation of the work of God through the nation of Israel. Don't let your familiarity with this story get in the way of recognizing how profound God's work of grace is. Instead, appreciate the vast love of God who promised to act, who kept that promise, and who offers us even today that same grace which is ours to receive.
We've reached the end of the story that most of us know from Luke chapter 2 because we've heard it year after year at Christmas time. In the next episode, we're going to move ahead to the stories that came afterwards. These are still part of the infancy narrative, but it's the story of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple and the response of the people there who see Jesus. So we're going to stay in Luke in the next episode and continue to look at how Isaiah 40 and the hope and the anticipation that's expressed there still exudes through everything that we hear in the account that Luke is giving. And Ron, we want to remind our audience that we have a companion resource to this series, which is an ebook that can supplement our individual study and can also be used as a curriculum for group study. It's downloadable from our website. You can find it at orthodox.faith/shop. And we encourage you to check that out. It's not only a helpful resource, but it's a way that you can support the podcast. So we invite you to take a look. That's where we have to wrap it up for this episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you very much for listening.